This is a Dauntless Media Collective podcast. Visit dauntless.fm for more content. He started pairing everyone who's deconstructed their faith with Josh Harris. And so he's taking, he's taking people who are victims of purity culture, who have a ton of wounds, and he's pairing them with the one guy who was the face of purity culture. To me, that is extremely, extremely problematic. Hi, I'm Nate. I'm Gail. And this is Full Mutuality. Our guest today is Rick Pidcock, who is a writer and recording artist based in South Carolina. He received a Master of Arts degree from Northern Seminary in 2021. His writing has appeared at Biologos, Baptist News Global, Patheos, and the Center for Christogenesis. He produces music under the artist name Provoke Wonder. And he's a stay-at-home dad for five kids. Wow. Thank you so much for joining us today, Rick. Uh, I'm really excited for our conversation. Um, I did want to start off the episode today by letting you kind of share your story. Um, Since, you know, our podcast deals with religion and faith, um, do you think you could share a little bit of your own history uh, with religion and some of your own journey as you sort of progressed in your faith journey? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And and thanks for having me. And uh, just as a, a preface, I tend to say this. I am a stay-at-home dad for five kids under the age of 11. So right now I'm holed up in a, a bedroom. We're so, so thankful to have you yeah. with understanding those, those that situation. <laughs> I mean, I've never had five. I only have two, but I'm, I, my hats yeah. go off to you. Totally. I did, I did one podcast where it was a video podcast and I had kids crawling on my shoulders in the background while we're trying to talk about, you know, spiritual deconstruction and stuff. So, but <laughs> yeah, so you can find that on YouTube if you want. But, it's, um, it's allegorical, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so anyway, um, yeah, so I, my uh, parents went to Bob Jones University, which is a, a fundamentalist Christian institution. Um, Nate might know up, something about Bob yeah, Jones. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, like, we thought John MacArthur was a compromiser. Oh, wow. Um, you know? Oh, wow. So, uh, basically, grew up in that world. Um, and I, I first sang a solo in church at age three. And I don't even remember that. Um, But from the very beginning in my baby book, my mom talks about how I had this desire for songwriting and uh, storytelling. And, um, and so basically when I was six, I was uh, pretending to direct music. That's what we called it back then. It wasn't, you know, worship leading, it was directing music. And somebody came in the room, an authority figure at the time and said, what are you doing? I was like, I'm directing music. And they're like, you're doing it. You're being too emotional. You, you, need to, you need to do it the right way, the proper way. And so I immediately had to like suppress what I was feeling. Wow. And then the next year, I ended up getting physically abused at my school uh, on a weekly basis, basically. And they would, my teacher would hit me in the face and, and tell me to, uh, she was going to keep doing it until I stopped crying. And so I had this like physical reinforcement to suppress what I was feeling inside. And so, um, basically over the next, basically through my childhood, I didn't trust anybody. Um, I, uh, had a lot of fear growing up in the purity culture and the left behind culture. Um, you know, constantly afraid the rapture was going to happen and I was going to, mm. you know, go through the tribulation, uh, you know, and, and a lot of fear of the Democrats, they were trying to get the persecution of the Christians going, you know, into the tribulation and stuff. So, um, so anyway, I ended up uh, going to Bob Jones University uh, because that's what we, you know, just it was kind of my only option. It felt like at the time, and um, and there I 
my uh, grandfather, uh, who was not a Christian, he, when I was there, he died and I was convinced that he was in hell and it was my fault for not witnessing to him enough. And, hmm. and so that's when I became this very hardcore five point Calvinist, very much in the line of like a John Piper, uh, Mark Driscoll, you yeah. know, these guys. And really it was, it was my way of using theology to numb my pain. Um, mm-hmm. And, and, and all of that. And so I spent the next 15 years in that world, uh, in the church planting in like an X 29 adjacent world and, um, leading worship. And then basically when I was 35, um, my Calvinist church had this organization come in called 10,000 fathers worship school. Okay. And they told us that we needed to have self-awareness and God awareness. And I, I thought, well, my God awareness is totally fine, but I've never thought about my self-awareness before. Hmm. And so um, basically that night they had us write down our top 10 high points and hard times in life. And when I wrote those down on a piece of paper, I realized I had no idea how hurt I was and I just broke down and started to cry. And, um, basically for the next year, I went through this process with them of learning to see myself and to, um, come into touch with my wonders and wounds and really to love myself in a healthy way. And, and when that self-awareness deepened, my God awareness started to become shaky. And so that's, um, that's when my theology really started to, uh, I started to question everything and I ended up going to seminary as part of my deconstruction process. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and just graduated this past year with that. And, Congratulations. and then we ended up, yeah, thanks. Yeah. So that was fun. And then we ended up having to leave the church and just have a very different view of spirituality and community these days. So, and, and, and just been, uh, I, and then just been writing, you know, since then. So I, I was in the cleaning industry and I, I quit my business to be a stay at home dad and, and my wife was an interior designer. So. Wow. wow. Thanks cool. so much for, uh, for sharing. It's funny um, that you mentioned um, Bob Jones university and then uh, the, the X 29 network um, as that's, very much my own story. Although I, I took a, a, a detour um, a, on on my journey a little bit. I ended up at sort of a, an Andy Stanley kind of a de- adjacent uh, church for a couple of years before ending up in, in the Acts 29 network. And some of that was by uh, was was entirely by accident. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, anyway, so I had a question when you were um, mentioning about how, you know, you stopped going to church. Uh, I, I also had a church break. Did And I'm just curious, from my own personal experience, that time away was like, it was freedom to be able to ask those really harder questions and to be able to think outside of what church had been, you know, telling me that I'm supposed to think and believe. Did you find that that did that for you? Like, what has that transition outside of being in church? Has it felt like the ground yeah. fell out from under you? Has it felt in, like hard in some ways or has it been refreshing? Like, what would you... Yeah. So like I, um, in the church planting world, especially when you're the one leading worship, you don't make any money. And, and so my dream was always to be able to be employed full time by the church. And so, uh, my desire was to build the church up enough to be able to hire me. And, and then, um, and then when that church fell through, uh, I started a mega church here in town, volunteering, leading worship and doing an album for them. And uh, my desire again was to be able to become on staff full time somewhere. And so I, I was in this cleaning industry. I started a cleaning business to give myself flexibility for that and, um, and, and to, to be able to pursue that. But then when the, when the self-awareness began to happen, I started having these questions and 
And I had to suppress them because in order to get a church job, you had to have all the right answers. And then when I, uh, when I eventually died to that need of having a church job, that's when all of these questions that I had, I began to realize I was suppressing because of my deepening self-awareness. That's when I felt free to ask those questions. And so we ended up leaving the conservative evangelical Calvinist non-denominational church. We ended up in an Anglican church and, and we were there for a year and it was, it was a pretty good situation for us, but then, you know, the journey kept on going and we started to recognize these hierarchies that were happening, these theological hierarchies, not just, not just power games, you know, but um, eventually that got to the point where, and, and our, our understanding of spirituality was more like opening up to seeing the connection that we have with all of creation. And, and we started to realize that this church situation was not really fitting what our unfolding awareness was becoming. And so uh, eventually it got to the point where it was, it was an easy decision. I remember walking through the, uh, walking through the lobby after teaching children's church and hearing the congregation singing, uh, praise God from whom all blessings flow and and realizing as I was opening that door like this is probably the last time I'm going to be in a church service for I don't know how long and and so it's really been it's been a really freeing opportunity for us I hear a lot of people who are in those who are still in the church they talk about how they can't imagine not having the church anymore but once now that I've been outside of it it I I don't relate to that at all mm. It's so, uh, it's fascinating to hear everyone's journeys. There's like elements from your story yeah. that I could pick out and re- like it resembles. And then there's always those kind of different turns for everyone where it's uh, not exactly identical, but thank you for sharing that. Thank you for like, yeah, hopefully we'll get more into some of that as we, I don't know, get into Mars Hill and how it relates to our stories. And I mean, I think Nate and I, if I'm just going to like, just go straight into it, are fascinated with it because, well, we're, we're, we're kids of the 80s. So Mark Driscoll came to his rise as we were young adults. I don't know if you're in the same age bracket mm-hmm. as us, but like, so. I was born in 82. Okay. I'm 81. Nate's 84. Yeah. We're giving all oh, okay. our birthdates, credit cards, anyone, anything. No, just yeah, kidding. Yeah. <laughs> But, Maybe we can that part out. Too. Okay, we'll edit that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so like definitely we're around the same age group, and Mar- and Mars Hill was really uh, would you say like defining the evangelical landscape as we were in our twenties? I mean, you you were in wh- which world were you in at that time? You were past Bob Jones. Were you like out of that world? How much influence did Mars Hill have, and how did it touch on where you were at when it was at its rise? Yeah. Yeah, so I when I graduated from Bob Jones, I moved out to Denver, Colorado to help start a church with another guy who graduated from Bob Jones. And so we were more contemporary in our like worship style. We were more conservative evangelical gospel coalition type as opposed to the fundamentalism of Bob Jones. Mm-hmm. Um and and there are some nuances there, but um but all of our supporting churches were fundamentalist. And so we had to walk this tightrope between being who we felt called to be as conservative evangelical, more contemporary community type people. Um, But also our supporters are fundamentalists and we couldn't offend them because we needed their financial support. That sounds really hard not to offend fundamentalists. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, but then when we moved out to Denver, like we spent the first year, we're going to spend the first year visiting all these different churches of all different stripes. And we went, we we went to like emergent churches and charismatic churches. And, but every Sunday we were talking about what was wrong with, that church. Oh, they don't understand the gospel like we do. And 
And, and you, you heard some of that in the Mark Driscoll story, you know, well, about six months into that, I was just spiritually like drained and I couldn't do anymore. So I ended up, my wife and I ended up going to a, um, uh, Acts 29 church and I, uh, ended up leading worship there for six months while we were waiting to start our church. And so I got to know a lot of the Acts 29 type people, especially because the church that we went to, the, the pastor ended up going on to lead Acts 29 for a while. So, um, yeah, so I was kind of connected to a, a number of the names that are in the podcast that Christianity Today is doing. So, uh, okay. So, and I guess for, for the background for people who don't realize it, Mark Driscoll, was he the founder of Acts 29? Or he like he was just majorly involved. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He he found it, and he did like the um they did uh they did conferences all over the world, and you had all of these little Mark Driscoll wannabe guys that would try to talk cool, and they'd cuss because they not that they would normally cuss, but they just wanted to cuss to be cool like Mark, you know. And uh, <laughs> and so you could see a lot of that in the smaller churches, and, and that was one thing that the podcast mentioned that I thought was, was good was that they said that the, the Driscoll's culture wasn't just at Mars Hill. Mm-hmm. Like there's this story got reproduced in a lot of smaller churches. Oh yeah. And so as much as I have major problems with the podcast, I did recognize parts of my story in the earlier episodes of it. And I did appreciate that my story was given at least a sentence or two of a voicing there where they said, you know, this is, this was an entire culture mm-hmm. that was developed in church planting. I mean, they've, they've planted hundreds of churches. I mean, you'd mentioned Acts 29 and Nate actually was a part of a, he was on staff at a church that Acts 29 tried to woo. And basically, cause they were a very big, and you could. Yeah, so we, so the, the church that I was working for was a very large um, church plant. And um, it like our, the, the first Sunday um, that we launched, uh, we already had like 11, 1200 people. Um, and then. It just continued growing from there. In Godless, um, New Jersey. Yeah, in, in Godless, nice. North Jersey, in New York City. <laughs> Although at this point now, it's so um, it's so saturated with churches, um, and and I attribute that to one to uh, a handful of churches, including the ones that I had worked for. Um, but in any case, so we um, our our story is a little bit more of we we launched and as we were in the process of launching the Acts 29 network was becoming aware of our church and um because the i guess the the representative um Acts 29 director in New Jersey was looking for kind of a a big church that he could make sort of the 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 hub of Acts 29 activity in in New Jersey and when he found out about us and uh heard our sermon podcast he was like oh these guys understand the gospel so mm-hmm. you know they, they set up shop and started hosting boot camps and stuff and then we became a candidate church and eventually um joined the Acts 29 network as a church that was planting other churches and what's uh fascinating is that a church that we had planted um it it seems it it appears to me that a similar story has taken place the guy who launched the church um vanished uh he was a a colleague of mine he was doing his residency at at the church i was working for um and then went and planted his church and i was just curious one night i went on the church's website to see you know what's what's he up to and everything is scrubbed and his, he's gone his, like his, permits, his name has been like scrubbed from the website um his uh like any archived sermons don't actually have his name attached to uh to them and mm. i can't find anything there's there was there was a facebook post that 
like back around the time that things apparently switched over that said essentially in light of what's taken place um we were we're going to have you know special uh sessions and it was during the pandemic apparently um because they were, they were having special zoom sessions um or and and like you know in order to maintain social distance blah blah blah, blah. anyway so that's kind of like my um acts 29 adjacent story um mm -hmm. But you had written a piece in um, Baptist News Global that um, really sort of touched on, and you you were alluding to this a little bit about um, things that you noticed were wrong in this podcast. So I think we sort of dove into talking about the podcast. And I want to give a little intro about that podcast. So Christianity Today, which is kind of the premier publication of evangelical Christianity, started a podcast that was looking into the um they called it the rise and fall of mars hill when i think in reality it's more exploring how mars hill church fell apart um they gave a little bit of an intro into how the church started and, and its growth but really it's been it's been mostly focused on on the implosion of the church um but your your piece in um in Baptist News Global, which I'll, I'll uh, link to in the show notes, um, was titled, I lived in the culture of the rise and fall of Mars Hill. And there's one part of the story that's wrong. Um, so what what would you say? I mean, it seems based on our conversation that there, there's more than just one part, but what would you say yeah. would, would be sort of the highlight um, of what's wrong with that podcast? This is actually something that's kind of funny. One, one thing I've noticed is I don't actually write the headlines to my stories when they're <laughs> published. Elsewhere. And so sometimes, you know, an editor may use a title that I'm like, well, there's a lot of problems. But um, that's happened a couple of times or I'll get quoted as Rick Pidcock says such and such. And they quote the title of the podcast of the article that I do. Um, I'm like, well, actually, that's, that's actually the one thing that I didn't actually write, you know, oh. um, but with that disclaimer, I started thinking about after I because I agree with you, there's a lot of problems with it. Um, my article wasn't so much focused on the podcast in general. It was more focused on this one particular episode with Josh Harris. Yes. Who was the author of I Stating Goodbye. Yes. And a very big leader in the purity culture movement of the 90s. And so I, that one, uh, to me, that episode changed a lot of how I felt about the podcast. And I'm sure I could go back and see warning signs if I went back and listened again. But I was so turned off by that episode that I didn't really feel like going back and listening again. <laughs> I mean, I think we were so, in the same boat as you, Rick. Like Nate and I were listening to them episode by episode, and then we hit yeah. the Joshua Harris episode, and we were just like, "Whoa, this is this yeah, is terrible. This, <laughs> this is yeah." So, so with those disclaimers, I started thinking about that the one thing, and if I, I feel like if I could really boil it down um, to one thing. My biggest concern was was what they're doing to victims of abuse by how they're framing the story. And, and, and in particular, in that episode, they, they begin by talking about Driscoll, who we all know is an abuser, and Josh Harris, who has, you know, moved on from the abusive teaching that he's taught. But and so I don't want to like trash Harris as a person, mm -hmm. you know, for who he is now. But he still represents like his teaching represented a lot of pain that a lot of us feel. And and so they paired those two together. And then Mike Cosper, the producer for the podcast, then transitions into pairing, because Josh Harris is deconstructed, he started pairing everyone who's deconstructed their faith with Josh Harris. And right. so he's taking, he's taking people who are victims of purity culture, who have a ton of wounds, and he's pairing them with the one guy who was the face of purity culture. To me, that is extremely 
extremely problematic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think to, to sort of elaborate on that a little bit, um, and, and again, you know, not, not to, to trash Josh Harris, because some of that, of what he, he has shared um, in his own story um, kind of mirrors some of our own, which I think makes it a little bit muddy for people um, on kind of, uh, I guess, quote unquote, our side of the, the deconstruction coin. Um, it, it's, uh, and, and part of why I think people have, um, have reacted so viscerally to any kind of criticism of, um, of Josh Harris is that when he shared that he left the Christian faith, so many, so many in our circles said, yeah, that's me too. I, I left the Christian faith too. But I think as you were alluding to, he was the face of a movement that really did a lot of harm. And it's, it's, it's triggering to see him suddenly become uh, representative of, of the people that he harmed. Yeah. It, like basically um, I'm, I'm mirroring exactly echoing exactly what you said, but also um, there's another story there um, with Josh Harris and, and is only briefly alluded to in the podcast. And I think a lot of people, even in our own circles um, and people who are, who are defending Harris um, often forget some of what he was complicit in when he was pastoring in a sovereign grace church. Yeah. Like mm. we, we hear about the fact that he was the author of I Kiss Dating Goodbye and he's disavowed those books and he's, you know, he, all of that, but it's often left out of the story. And I think Christianity Today did a brief touch on it was as the pastor in Covenant Life Church, the sovereign grace ministry flagship church, he, he was complicit in the abuse. He didn't report it to police. Like his actions yeah. were extreme. And I think a lot of times when people identify with Joshua Harris, they're like they're reading into things quite deeply in terms of seeing themselves in him because most people, mm-hmm. most of us didn't have that sort of power and weren't making those sort of choices and decisions along the way. And then to later see that same guy charging courses for deconstruction at $270 to $5 a pop after he's deconstructed for five minutes, it just sort of seems yeah. very enraging, I think, for it's it seems to cause a lot of opposing opinions, people who very much identify with Joshua, which I don't fully understand because I don't, I think they, people in those positions often want, and, and Josh was a great communicator as they've alluded to in the Christianity Today podcast, but it causes people to very deeply identify with him when they didn't have, sure, they may have been in their churches teaching the wrong things to people and regret what they used to believe and teach like Joshua, but they didn't hold that same kind of power that destroyed the lives of people who are sexually abused. You know, they didn't make the kind of decisions Joshua made even aside from the purity culture teachings, which again, on its own is also horrific. And like you said, for the people mm-hmm. who suffered from the abuse caused by his teachings to then be linked up with him. I don't know. I'm, I'm sort of rabbit trailing and going on all kinds of tangents, but there was, there's just so much there when it comes to Joshua yeah. and so many emotions yeah. that could get triggered. Yeah. And yeah. I think like to, to, to view this within the broader conversation that's happening in evangelicalism right now is important. Like the gospel coalition, Alyssa Childers, all these people, they're in a total, they're, they're like in a panic right now about deconstructing Christians or ex evangelicals. And they're writing all these things about, you know, these are what, this is what Richard Rohr thinks and Rob Bell and, you know, and they're going after these deconstructing people. And I think that, um, what I started to realize in this rise and fall of Mars Hill podcast is that they were talking about our pain. They were talking about the wounds that we had. And I was resonating with that to some degree. I was seeing my story in there, but then they were using that in that episode to then delegitimize our perspective. I say, because you're wounded, you can't see clearly. And my point is Mm. maybe because we're wounded, we can see clearly and we can see the dynamics of hierarchy that has um, 
permeated your culture. And that's not where they're willing to go. Yeah. I think those were some of the pieces of what you wrote that resonated most with me is when you kind of called out the way that they were making sort of straw man between those mm-hmm. who deconstructed and, and seeking truth as if those two things were uh, like they were making some very false dichotomies that you're either letting your experiences. I, I'm trying to think of how they worded it. Um, I have, I have the, uh, the quote up the here. Quote. Um, they said, when we face a crisis of belief, to see it as a challenge to not only address our pain, as essential as that is, but to address the doubts themselves by seeking truth. This isn't to say that we master our fears and our doubts, particularly on the other side of deep woundedness, but it does mean that there's a kind of faith-filled willingness to look to God, to the scriptures, to the church, and to seek the truth where it may be found. Yeah. There's a lot there, and... I think the the language is incredibly triggering because, at least for me, and maybe we could have a a, a brief uh, dialogue about that right there, but for me, it feels like it's a dismissiveness of our stories of pain and hurt at the hands of the church, a dismissiveness of the conclusions that we came to. There are some of us who deconstructed from evangelicalism who, the for us, it might the impetus of leaving the impetus for leaving might not have been um, wounds from the church, but it might have been we had questions, we had doubts, and we were we were searching. And what we the conclusions we came to were incompatible with uh, the church's espoused doctrines. And then they ran us out of town. But what that does, what that says to me is, it, I don't know. It feels dismissive of of all of our stories and conclusions. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts as well? Yeah, and and, and it's interesting the way. They they point to the uh, the scriptures and the church and the truth. Like, first of all, the church is the one that's abusing us. The scriptures are what they use to justify it. And ultimately, what you know, what we're asking about is is in our deconstruction process is what what is your theology and what is your ethics of control say about the character of God? Is this really? Do we really believe that this infinite God of the of the cosmos of quantum physics needs to have a blood sacrifice and needs to see somebody violently die in order to love us. That's what we're asking. And, and so for them to, to try to uh, get us to look to their God and to their scriptures and to their church, like they're trying to control the narrative. Mm. And so they're, they're just, which is abuse. Yeah. You've been wounded. You've been abused in our churches. Um, but turn back to the church for answers with your struggles on these matters and look to the Bible interpreted through our lens. And that's where you're going to you're going to be helped with your situation. And it's just going back mm-hmm. to your abuser for the help just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And I like what you said, too, about the teachings and the doctrine. I think they like to do that. Maybe it's something I think it's something you brought up that separation they try to make between the the ethics that come out of those teachings. Right. Like they. Mm-hmm. That like it's some the abuse that happens is some random thing that's not directly linked to how they're teaching about God and what they're presenting as what a relationship with a divine being looks like. The structures, the way they the way they present God, what they believe about God, they try and divorce that from the consequences that you're you're pointing to are directly linked to it when you talk about how they imagine a loving mm-hmm. God needing a blood sacrifice in order to love you. Do you want to elaborate mm-hmm. on that a little bit more? Or? So you, you often hear Christians, evangelical Christians, will say. Oh, Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. And so they can discount every other religious perspective, but we have a relationship. And I'm like, okay, like I'll go with you on Christianity's relationship. So my question then is what kind of relationship exists within a theology of hierarchy? Mm. And that's a relationship of abuse. 
so you look back through, uh, you know, into the ancient times that these religions were, were developing, and you had this cosmology that was hierarchical. So they believed in this three-tiered cosmos where the divine realm was a hierarchy of divine beings that descended into the human realm, which was a hierarchy of human beings. And so, you know, those who were lower in the hierarchy had to honor those who were above them on the hierarchy. And those who were above shamed those who were below and demanded submission. And and the, they believed that the divine hierarchy was mirrored in the human hierarchy. And we see this not just in, um, we see this in literally every culture. Like it's in, it's in Eastern religions, it's in Western religions, it's in all these different religions, they had this hierarchical view of the cosmos back then. And and that affected the relationships between people within that hierarchy. And so um, and so I think that, that that is one part that needs to we need to remember here is we don't necessarily believe in a hierarchical cosmology anymore, but we still have theology that was developed within that false cosmos. And 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 so we are we are still situated relationally you know, males over females, certain races and color you know, over, over other races, like, you know, white men tend to be at the top. This yep. is, this is, this is a hierarchical situation. So yeah. I think it's important to recognize that. Yeah. I love what you wrote in your piece. Um, you said that uh, conservative evangelicalism discipled us to believe that theology forms ethics. Their retributive penal substitutionary theology was the gospel. Their ethics were living out the gospel. Now that so many of their leaders are being exposed for abusive ethics, they want us to pretend that abusive ethics are not a sign of abusive theology. Yeah, and you look, so you imagine this hierarchy, and you've got, like, even in, let's say, the Greco-Roman culture, you know, you had the the man in the in the home and you had his his wife below him his children below him you had his slaves below him and so the there was a power dynamic within that relationship and and the ethics of how you treated one another flowed from uh your position within that hierarchy and mm-hmm. so you know theology is then basically making sense of those relationships it's it's saying that those who are um justice happens through uh, honoring those higher up and shaming those below, and through demanding a violent retribution for those who don't fall in line in their place on the hierarchy, and and so you know you can't have four hundred years in American culture of people celebrating justice as the violent retribution against you know anyone who doesn't stand in line, um, eternal conscious torment, um, you know incarcer- mass incarceration. And in and, and, and pursuing all of these violent things and then celebrating them in our worship songs and, and then think that people's ethics aren't going to be formed by that in the way that they treat one another. Yeah. Um, I have nothing further to add to that. <laughs> That's some some very... Um, powerful um, stuff. And I think, I think that's... Honestly, I think that's worth sort of sitting with for a little bit. Tracing how violent these ideologies and theologies are and connecting them to hey this is the outflow of that if you're going to allow these tenets to fully to be your identification in how you operate in the world you call this gospel then that outflow is going to be there the violence the abusiveness um i mean the fact that their god demands a blood sacrifice even in this day and age (laughs) um it it just makes it 
so clear to me. Yeah. Yeah. So there's another article that I wrote for the Center for Christogenesis recently and talking about how modern worship services contain within them different stages of the evolution of human consciousness. And so like um, from say like 64,000 to 3000 BC, uh, you had these, the human consciousness during that time was very tribal, ritualistic. They celebrated blood sacrifice in community. And you see that all of a sudden you look at our, okay, look at our, the lyrics of our, of our worship songs today. They're celebrating blood sacrifice. Like these, mm-hmm. these people believed that there was a separation between the heavens and the earth, and then it's bridged through blood sacrifice. Well, that's, that's evangelical theology, but it's, it's based off of a, a human level of human consciousness that was thousands, tens of thousands of years ago. Mm-hmm. And, and then you look at, um, as tribes began to interact with one another, the individual began to uh, come out. Well, you know, they began to question some of their tribe's scripts and, and then the individual began to rise. And that's when hierarchy began to come um, men over women and the, the hierarchical relationship structures uh, within that consciousness. And that, that existed throughout the next couple thousand years. And, and just now today, like we're coming into this with like quantum physics and evolution and all of this, you know, technology, we're starting to, have this global consciousness where we're starting to realize, oh, wait, um, there is no hierarchy. Uh, there is no hierarchical cosmos. And, and we're starting to see one another. And, and so in the modern worship service, you've got like these people coming together, but you also have, we're, we're, but we're in relationships of hierarchy and we're singing about blood sacrifice from far before that. And so it's just so disconnected. And and I think that um, what I'm saying is we need to see these connections between ancient cosmology and how that formed their theology and how that formed ethics and how that has traced it, itself out in the setting up of abusive power structures, whether it's in the home or in society. And, and that's led to a lot of the problems we have today. Yeah, I mean, it's I'm sort of going back to a previous uh, a previous thing that you said. As I'm reflecting over your your personal story, I I related to the getting hit for crying and being told. Uh, I mean, I grew up in an abusive foster home, and I I had to I had to train pain. I wasn't allowed to cry when my parents left. They they would beat me, my foster mother, if I cried when my mom would leave me. So I had to learn how to repress that. And it took me a long time as an adult to get in touch with sadness and pain. Like I would feel mm-hmm. anger, but sadness was like the hardest to access for me. It took me a while to heal from that. Um, but as I did, as I got to that place, you know, like you, you mentioned in your story, um, s- like that self-awareness and how as you grew in self-awareness, the God awareness thing just started to shake and it started to change. And there was something really beautiful that you wrote in uh, in the article that you that you put together where you said, Cosper delegitimizes doubt and labels ex-evangelicals as not able to see clearly because of their pain. It never seems to dawn on him that perhaps it is our pain that's allowed us to finally see the reality of the theology conservative evangelicals have been abusing us with. And I just thought that was such uh, just such an eye-opening and beautiful way of expressing it. And I thought of how mm. how that delegitimizing is pain. Like, I, I don't know if all of you guys have heard or seen people do that. Oh, the church, you're just dealing with church hurt. And like, there's this sort of mm. dismissiveness with the pain you have clouding your judgment to see clearly. And I love how you kind of point out that actually pain can be what reveals reality to you. And the delegitimizing even of people's stories as not uh, a valid reason for taking the past that people take. And I, and I just, it sort of seems like such a big disconnect to me that evangelicals imagine that like scripture is not based on story. 
that all the gospels about Jesus are not based on people writing down their stories. And why would we assume people's stories are disconnected from truth rather than seeing people's lived experiences as being revealers of truth, as being valid for pieces of truth, as pain being insightful and um, revelatory. Am I saying that word right? But like of of showing us um, truth and reality in a more clear fashion, rather than it being something that obscures us from like, we all had those aha moments and a lot of them that helped us to look more clearly at things rather than pushing aside and ignoring what was happening happened because pain hit and a situation caused us to have to look more deeply at what was going on instead of continually blocking out the pieces that would shatter our world of view or how we perceive things to be. I don't know if you had any further thoughts on that yeah. point, but yeah, and I think, I think grief is something that evangelicals need to get in touch with. Like when all growing up, whenever I would always hear it when people died that weren't evangelicals, we would we would always talk about or when when an evangelical died we'd say we sorrow not as those who have no hope. right and so i always had this vision that people who weren't evangelicals when someone in their family died that their funerals are just like people bawling their eyes out you know all over the yeah. floor uncontrollable sorrow and we were singing happy songs about how they're in heaven you know and it's like this whole sorrow not as those who have no hope i felt like it was i feel now like it was more like don't sorrow, don't grieve. Hmm. And it was keeping us from that. And, and, you know, evangelicals, when, when someone in their family, you know, gets cancer or um, when there's a, a miscarriage or you're, you know, different things like that. Like so often I feel like when I was there, my, my temptation was, okay, I need to talk about this in a way that honors and glorifies God. You know, the prayers were Lord, let your will be done here. Or may whatever happens, God get the glory and the honor. And all that's hierarchy language. Mm-hmm. Convergent language is let's come together in our grieving and in our love and in our weeping. And if there's a God who is real in any way, then I believe that's where God shows up. Not in being talked about really nicely by those who are suppressing their pain. Yeah. There seems to me almost this, um, A, an an inability to face their pain, but also um, this fear that, um, you know, we need to placate God. Um, God's going to get angry at you if you don't say the right words and you don't make it sound really, really good. And if you struggle, well, then you're you're not. God is going to be upset at how you represent him. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Right. It, like, you know, the whole Jesus wept thing when Lazarus died, like even that was framed as, okay, you're allowed to cry because Jesus wept. Like, no, like there's a difference between weeping because you're allowed to and ju- and being there in your grief. Yeah. That piece is supposed to show us that Jesus, that part of humanity is the ability to weep, not to be like, oh, right. You could, you could cry because Jesus, because <laughs> Jesus did it. Yeah. You, you can cry to a point, but not as those who have no hope. Right. 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 Exactly. Um, I want to talk a, a little bit again about um, Christianity Today's um, sort of approach to uh, to um, Joshua Harris, et cetera. Cause you, you, um, you had a, a, a great little, um, there, there's an excerpt in your piece that I, that I want to explore a little bit. Um, you wrote by focusing on Harris's social media skills and pairing ex evangelicals together with Harris, Cosper, um, Mike Cosper, the host of the, uh, of the Christianity Today podcast categorizes those who have deconstructed their faith as worshiping the gods of sex, money, beauty, power, or enlightenment. He also implies that those of us who deconstruct are being duped by Instagram posts, uh, the same deconstruction ignorance about deconstruction that the gospel coalition has been putting out. And then, uh, Cosper continues. The other thing that comes to mind from 
me is how the ex-evangelical phenomenon is itself an expression of evangelical culture. It has its own gathering of celebrities, its own code of ethics, its own sense of who's in and who's out, its own gatekeepers. Um, in other words, Cosper seems to think those who have left evangelicalism after being deeply wounded by evangelicalism are virtually no different than the stories they left behind, which is kind of what we were talking about as well. But I want to sort of hone in on that, like um, putting ex-evangelicals and evangelicals in kind of the same category, like, uh, or as, as Cosper tells Harris, you know, you're, you're just evangelizing in a different way now. Yeah. I think like one thing that, that we as humans, even just backing up from the evangelical thing here for a moment, one, one thing that we as humans tend to do is we tend to project onto others what we intuitively know to be true about ourselves. And so I think that some of that may be happening here. Mm. Um, but then zooming in a bit more on evangelicalism, one thing that they tend to do is they see everything and they interpret everyone else through their lens. So um, there's a documentary out called uh, American Gospel. Uh, there's a couple of them actually, and and in 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 one of those documentaries, they they talk about how they say that every other religion uh, is believes that you get to heaven by good works, and and so you think about like evangelical theology says that there's a place called heaven, a throne room called heaven after you die. And in order to get there, God needs absolute perfection. And because you can't, therefore Jesus perfectly obeyed in your place in order to give you his righteousness. And then he died the death that you deserve to die. And so now you can be allowed into this throne room after you die. And so it's really, even though they say it's about grace, it wasn't grace. It was earned by Jesus. You know, it was, it had to, he had to earn perfection in order to get there. So then what they do is they project that onto all these other people. Oh, you know, every other religion, you know, Catholics, even they believe in salvation by good works. Buddhists believe in salvation by good works. Muslims, all of them, they say, you know, and, and what they're doing is, um, I think they're, they're projecting other, they're projecting their theology onto others and they're not letting others frame and perhaps an entirely different framework that doesn't even believe in a throne room after death mm -hmm. um maybe has an entirely different operating system or framework and so i think that's something that's going on and then i also think there's this there's a tendency among evangelicals um to want to put themselves above the fray like they're we represent this objective middle and i think you see a lot of that even in progressive christians uh, where they, we're not like the Democrats, we're not like the Republicans, we're not, you know, we're not an elephant, we're not a donkey, we're with the lamb, um, is a common phrase that they say. But then it's like, okay, what is, and so they, and so they want to paint both sides. They want to paint it out as there's two sides, they're both the same, and I'm the subjective middle. So I don't know, I think it's kind of a blend of some of those different things that's going on. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Cosper also um, used the phrase um, its own gatekeepers. Um, and, yeah. and I think you you were alluding to that as well. Um, and I just want to sort of rest on that just just a little bit, um, that this accusation of, um, of gatekeeping in ex-evangelicalism, I think to your point is, mm -hmm. is also um, a little bit of, of that projecting um, that, you know, they, they, they see the fact that um, so many prominent former evangelicals um, are voicing their opinions about what it is like to have deconstructed and what this means and are concerned with um, how the evangelical world is framing deconstruction. And then he interprets that as gatekeeping the way that evangelicals will gatekeep, especially in those circles. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, Mike Cosper himself comes from the sort of neo-Calvinist 
circle where, you know, if you don't believe the, the, the gospel of penal substitutionary atonement, you don't believe the real gospel. Um, so yeah, I kind of saw some of that as well in, in his own phrasing. Yeah. And, and so, so getting into, let's, you know, get into the progressive evangelicalism thing here. Like, cause that's the accusation. I hear that. Um, you know, I, some of my conservative friends will tell me, well, you're just a extremist on the other side now, or, you know, you won't heard give that. grace. Two sides to the same coin. Yeah. 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 You won't give grace to people who disagree with you. And you look at like, I don't know if you're ever on progressive evangelical Twitter. There's, there's a lot of very highly explosive controversies that happen. Um, you, you saw it with Josh Harris, you know, when he came out with his thing, um, his course, uh, you'll see it sometimes with Michael Gunger. Uh, mm-hmm. who isn't an evangelical anymore, but he'll say something that offends people. And then he, then they, you know, they'll go after him for it. And then he kind of doubles down. Yeah. And, and so, and it turns into this huge controversy. And then, you know, like someone like science Mike, that's like the Mr. Rogers of, you know, today gets caught up in it because he was once with the liturgist. And so it turns into this big mess. And mm-hmm. so I think progressive evangelicals get this gatekeepers criticism coming their way. Uh, and, and, and so I, I guess what I, what I, what I kind of come across, the way I think about that is progressive evangelicals are usually more progressive because we have a growing awareness of our wounds. But the thing is, we are also on a spectrum of processing our wounds. Some of us are in therapy. Some of us can't afford therapy. And so you can't just, um, when I see these, uh, these explosions happening here, I see a spectrum of very hurting people. And so I want to meet with them in their hurt. Um, why are, uh, why are you upset at Michael Gunger? Why are you upset at Josh Harris? There's, there may be a very legitimate reason for that. Oh yeah. Josh Harris, his teaching hurt you. Um, and so my, my desire is to not label you as a gatekeeper, but to say, I recognize your hurt. I recognize your pain. It's legitimate. You know, I have some pain here too. And, um, and, and I think calling that hurting person on the other side of the, of of the road, a gatekeeper, it just feels abusive to me. Mm. It's like, you know, you think about the good Samaritan, you know, is this person, this individual's on the side of the road, they've been beaten by these religious leaders. They've been ignored by religious leaders or political leaders or, you know, whoever it is. Imagine when that person gets healed, you know, when they recover and, and, and they would recognize some of these abuses in society. Imagine if they speak to that hurt and they say, Hey, I recognize a pattern here this Josh Harris situation or this Michael Gunger situation or whatever, insert whatever big controversy thing. I'm recognizing something here from my pain that I saw on the side of the road. And imagine if we were to then tell that person, oh, you're, you're just being a gatekeeper. <laughs> that would be so dismissive of them. Mm-hmm. And so I want to be, I want to meet with the person on the side of the road and I want to be with them when they're healed and they can share their perspective from the side of the road. That's such a, an absolutely beautiful perspective. I, I think what I'm hearing is, you know, when someone has recovered from abuse, they're not damaged goods. They actually have insight from what they've lived out. Yes, not all of us have had the money to go to therapy and we're all at different phases of working through it. But there becomes a recognition and an awareness through the suffering, which is not a fun way to have to learn. But it's a way that a lot of us end up having to accumulate information through through bad situations. Mm-hmm. And they they have something to people who have been wounded and who are, you know, feeling a certain way when they see, you know, Joshua Harris or others. Um, make statements, they have something to say that's valid and that's worth listening to. And that comes out of experience and their pain 
is is actually an awareness of a lot of different things that need to be heard that haven't been heard that are about protecting themselves that are about safety. Um, I think a lot of people have gained a lot of experience on what a narcissistic personality looks like mm-hmm. and what are the red flags to look for in leadership and have gained an awareness of those type of things. So a lot of people are sounding alarms when they've been wounded, not because they're damaged, but because they've learned, they've seen things that they were not aware of before. And they care about their own safety, but also they care about the safety of the community of others and the community around them. And I like, I like what you said to just label them as gatekeepers as a way of saying, Oh, you're just being controlling like evangelicals. When we were in that we were controlling mm-hmm. and that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to say that person's bad. This person's good. We allow this person. We don't allow this person. But in reality, like, yeah, being able to be aware when something is dangerous is a good thing. And a lot of times we were taught to not trust our instincts and just listen to the authorities around us and not listen to our gut on any of that. And as we come out of those situations, we're allowed to say, yeah, that person, something's off. Something's, something really strikes me as off from my experience with abusive people. That person is channeling out all of those personality mm-hmm. traits and I recognize them. Um, yeah. I kind of picture the hierarchy as this tower of Babel that's in the middle of the, you know, of this world. And we were in this tower, we had our place and we've left it and we've gone out and now we're in the wilderness and it's kind of a scary place and we're processing things. Mm. And, um, and, but we can all like, once you see the hierarchy, you can always see the tower. You can always know, Oh, there it is. It's, it's silly. It's ridiculous. And for them to, and I think that's why those at the top of the tower, they, they discount feelings. They discount perspectives. Uh, They discount those who are in the dirt. They discount those who are in the forest uh, because you're no longer in their tower. And, um, and, and that's why we're constantly told heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Don't trust your feelings. Trust the, the unchanging truth of God as interpreted by us mm-hmm. They're trying to get us back in the tower. And I'm saying this forest is kind of cool. Yeah. It's, it's scary, but it's, it's nice too. Yeah. There's community here. Um, thank you so much, uh, for everything that you have, uh, that you have shared. I do want to spend the last few minutes. Um, th- this has been a, a heavy conversation, but I think it's much needed. Um, and, and I'm, I'm grateful for your insights. Um, and, uh, but before we, we wrap up our conversation, I want to transition a little bit into something a little bit more, I guess, more upbeat. I, I mean, you'll, you'll tell us you have a book coming out. Is it a children's um, book? That's what I'm wondering. It's a children's book. It's yeah. a children's book. Yeah. Has it, yep. has it gotten released yet or it's coming soon? No, it's, it's coming soon. I, uh, I'm, I don't know when you're going to release this podcast, but, um, it might be released by then. So we'll put a yeah. link to the name of your book. Would you like to give us a, yeah, it's called, it's called what if, and you can find my website, rickpidcock.com and go to the books tab. And it, whenever it releases, it'll be, it'll be sometime this fall. I'm not exactly sure when yet it'll be before the end of the year. Okay. Um, but I'm self publishing it. So I've got to, you know, fit it in with my time. Father stuff, of, so. of five, under 11, yeah, stay-at-home dad, exactly. went to school, went to seminary with this, finished yeah. his degree, and is writing a book. How? How, Rick? Please tell yeah. us your secrets. We want to know. <laughs> yeah. So so the book is called What If? And um, so a couple of years ago, so our kids were, uh, at the time, were two, four, and six. And their birth- they had three birthdays, like every other week, in February to March. And we were like, okay we like we couldn't afford to just put on a the same birthday party three weeks, you know, every two weeks and have the same people come to it. So like, we're just going to do it all in one shot. We'll have a nice big birthday party for all three of them. And so we did this pirate pixie birthday party and we, we made the backyard look like Neverland, you know, and it was, it was literally the picture perfect party. 
And so we're getting towards the end of the party and all of a sudden my mom, she's sitting there and she goes, I can't believe that, that the party hasn't been ruined. It, it seems like at any minute for the last two hours, it, it, like it's just about to start storming and, 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 and pouring down rain and, and everything is going to get ruined. I can't believe that it hasn't. And I looked up at the sky and it was perfectly blue. Hmm. There was literally not even a wisp of a cloud in the sky. And so I looked at my mom and it dawned on me. I said, mom, you're wearing sunglasses. <laughs> and her jaw just dropped because for the past two hours, she'd been in this constant state of panic thinking all these, what if, what if this happens? What if that happens? What if the party's about to end? When in reality, it was just the lenses she was seeing her world through. Mm. And so that's the story of the children's book is her going through this process of being at this party, but not being able to be present at the party because she's seeing her world through a particular set of lenses that is causing all of this fear and, and consternation. And once you get to the point where you can give voice to those questions, you can, um, you can not suppress them and not just become so uh, bogged down in your questions that you become overcome by them, but you can begin to observe, these are the questions I'm having. These are the fears I'm having, and I'm going to give voice to those. That's when you can recognize, oh, this is the lens I'm seeing my world through. And, um, and that's when you can begin to be present with whatever reality you actually do have. Wow. That kind of ties in very well. Even though we were having yeah. an adult conversation and this is a children's book, I can definitely see yeah. uh, when I when I go to church at our at our progressive church, they have a children's sermon before the adult sermon. And I usually appreciate the children's sermon. It kind of breaks it down for me in the main bullet points and where my mind could trail off in the adult sermon. I'm like, okay, mm -hmm. I get I thank you. I get this. This this broke it down for me. So I feel like this could be a nutshell, your book, in terms of a conversation that we just had about the different lenses that people see things through in the Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because people ask me, they'll be like, So what uh, what age group are you writing this for? And I'm <laughs> and like, is this for a five year old or a sixth grader? And I'm thinking, I'm kind of writing it for adults. Well, the like parents have to read the books to the kids. So we yeah. look for some books that are interesting for us too, even if we're reading to yeah. our kids. I'm writing it for the child in me. Mm. And I'm hoping that children who are being introduced to those wounds, um, we all have these childhood wounds from ages, you know, six to eight, especially that, that affected us um, in elementary school. Um, these kids are, are being introduced into their wounds now. Yeah. Um, what, what if they could be equipped with the tools of self-awareness that we never had until we were in our thirties? Um, mm -hmm. What if adults could be reminded of these tools. Um, mm -hmm. So I think it'd be a, it could be an interesting conversation starter between parents and kids to uh, become aware of themselves and also of one another. So that's kind of what I'm writing it for. I think that's a beautiful concept. The idea of shortening the learning curve. Um, that, that's an expression that I've heard is like, we all mm -hmm. have a, de a de developmental learning curve. And you talked about how in your, in your thirties, you got presented with that sort of looking at your own self and your own wounds. And that's when things started to really click in. And you're saying, I want to give these tools to to children, you know, so that yeah. even at a young age, they can have a self-awareness about things. And I think that's really beautiful. Um, yeah. Yeah. And the fun thing was my wife did the illustrations. So Ooh. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So that's exciting. Um, yeah, we're, we will look out for that. Um, so just uh, to kind of close things off, um, where can uh, where can folks find you online, on the uh, uh, social media, website, et cetera? Yeah, so website is rickpidcock.com. 
Um, and then also any of the social medias is, uh, you know, whatever slash Rick Pitcock. So, um, and on my, uh, on my website, I've also got links to my music that I, uh, produce as well under provoke wonder. And, uh, so yeah, you'll be able to find everything from there. So awesome. Thank you again. Uh, Thanks this so much. A fantastic conversation. Yeah. Um, and uh, we look forward to, to seeing what else um, you come out with. Um, once again, um, you can find uh, Rick, Pidcock, Rick Pidcock on social media. Um, just search for Rick Pidcock. And then uh, his website is rickpidcock.com. Yes. But if you, if you look on social media, look for somebody in their 30s. Otherwise, you might message my dad. And that has <laughs> happened where deconstructing people have messaged my fundamentalist dad thinking they were opening up to me <laughs> that, could so watch out for that. that could be very exciting oh, no. <laughs> i have my picture i don't have picture of grandkids or you know older people on my profile picture so look That's, for my picture that is good to know um once yeah. again thank you so much rick this has been a very enlightening conversation and uh, we look forward to, to seeing you around on on the internet thanks for listening if you enjoyed our conversation, you can subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app by searching for Full Mutuality. And please rate and review the show on iTunes or on our website, fullmutuality.com. Speaking of our website, you can go there to find links to all the platforms we're available on, as well as our social media pages, get more info on our guests, and even leave us a voicemail message. And who knows, we might even feature your messages on an upcoming episode. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.